Well, we have pretty well exhausted the Shack Monastery, uh, at least for this purpose. There's an inexhaustible storehouse of stories and strange interactions between people and nature and the whole situation of being Thai-trained forest monks in the forests of British Columbia with two ethnic communities, the Thais and the Sri Lankans, and then throw in a few Canadian Buddhists and then a, a wide variety of complete non-Buddhists who would show up at the Shak Monastery. Anyway, why did we wind up the Shak Monastery? Why did we move? Well, the reality was that we couldn't do anything with it. It's a rented shack. You can't modify it. We'd already brought in two trailers. By this, near the end, we had three trailers, one of them off on Crown Land. Two of them we negotiated for the allowance to leave them around the shack and charged extra rent for them, 25 bucks or something like that. So we had to have a steward. So one trailer was for that purpose. Now, the German monk had left to go to Burma as well, and I had gone to Thunder Bay 1996 to help Punadamo start Arrow River Hermitage. And I went out there in April and came back in late October. And the German monk, Piedamo, had left for Burma. He was alone for six months while I was in Thunder Bay, and I came back and then I was there alone with Bo as a steward for the next year. And I decided that we either find a place that we, we actually buy or maybe uh, I might go back to Thailand or someplace, you know, because this shack is, is certainly never going to go anywhere. It might get swept away in the river, but that's the only way it's going to go anywhere. But by this time, and I had no idea how we could do this. We had very little in the way of money or anything like this, but people had discovered us. And I thought, well, I'm just going to declare my intentions. So I would like to make a, a kind of a more, a, a true monastery, not just a rented shack. And if there's enough of you that are interested in this, it will happen. And if there are not enough that are interested in it, it won't happen because we don't have any money. We don't do, you know, we can't do anything, but I can declare my intentions. And by the way, it's not easy if you don't have the internet, before the internet, you don't have a phone. What are you going to do? Write a letter, walk 17 kilometers to the post office box and you know, to who? <laughs> so you just, you say it out loud when people are around. That's all you can do. We had formed the society by this time, of course, uh, Birkin Forest Monastery Society. And we had a board and all of that kind of stuff and a treasurer and this. So I just was telling everybody. And so we decided to start. And we began, like I had no idea how much land cost or what, how, how it would work or anything. And uh, so, but I, I have, I, being around spiritual communities and they never know any of this stuff. It's always up in the air. It's just a, it's a game of karma is what it is. So I just said, well, here's the idea. Here's the vision. So let's do it. 
And so we, we went to Vancouver, we, we drew circles. I think it was a fairly orderly thing. It wasn't just kind of hoping something would happen. I, I drew circles around Vancouver, an hour circle, two, three, four, five. And I thought, if you go beyond five hours, this would be driving time, then nobody's gonna, you're not gonna get any support. Well, one hour is, the US is south of Vancouver, one hour, so you, you can't go south. You can go as far as Surrey. <laughs> I, I remember I, I was in the Sri Lankan Bihara there, so I wasn't gonna go there. And a number of people begged us not to go onto an island <laughs> because they would have to take the ferries and all this kind of stuff. So they said, okay, that means that anything to the west of Vancouver is out of the question. North of Vancouver, guess where the shack was, north of Vancouver. What's between Vancouver and the shack? Whistler, one of the priciest high-end uh, real estate markets on the planet. <laughs> it ain't going to happen there. So we're, we, the only place you can go is east from Vancouver. And so there's the Fraser Valley out to Hope. So that's where we started looking. Also, of course, Vancouver is one of the, is certainly the priciest city in Canada. You can't even consider being close to the, the downtown, but so you have to start driving out into the Fraser Valley. I came down to Vancouver and my parents were off and I think they were in Mexico or someplace like this. And so we had a chance to stay at their house, Bo and I, and the ties would come and offer Donna and so forth. And some Sri Lankan disciples came and offered Donna. And one of them mentioned that he had had a terrible flu in Sri Lanka, that it was unlike anything he had ever had before. And it took him a, a month to get over and every, all this stuff. And then, oh, how interesting, how interesting. Then the next day we went out um, looking and about an hour into it, I started to feel sick and we came back and I came down with this flu. By, so this is a very contemporary story. We're in the midst of the pandemic, in case somebody's watching this 20 years from now. We're in the midst of this extremely fatal flu and it can have very damaging effects. I think I had a similar strain of it. I've never had anything like this. I was sick for five weeks. I tore my rib cartilage coughing and I was taken to the doctors and my resting heart rate was 160 beats a minute. He said, go, you gotta go to the hospital, the emergency ward now. So I went in there and everything and they, I don't know what they gave me, but anyway, I, met, I survived. And, uh, but it was, it totally interrupted the search for the monastery and I came out of it having lost a considerable amount of weight and it was one long uh, endurance thing. I didn't know for 20 years that I'd had a heart attack during that, that thing. Uh, it only showed up, I went to the doctor 20 years later and they, you start to do your, your annual health checkup. They were sending, oh, you've had a infarction or whatever they call it. Yeah, I said, what's that? You know, I said, oh, you had a heart attack. <laughs> I said, oh. I must have had uh, that flu. It was the flu. I didn't even know it. So yes, there, that was a, a strong delay in everything, but I recovered and we had realized that the Fraser Valley is too expensive. So we started looking at the five hour circle 
And that meant driving into the Caribou, 100 Mile House, what's called 100 Mile House. And there you start to get 20 acres of moose pasture, 10 acres of moose pasture. <laughs> That's a real term. We called it swamp. <laughs> and the real estate lady who was in a pair of cowboy boots and walked us in through the snow in, in May, <laughs> we walked into this moose pasture, which I'd called a swamp. And she corrected me. No, this is, we don't say swamp. It's moose pasture. Anyway, yes, the land was cheap and we're thinking, okay, so we get a helicopter and fly a trailer in here or what? You know, like, uh, so the, we, we looked in that area and we came across a few different things. Some were, you know, a hundred thousand and this and that, but we were just like, so we kept looking and more people got interested. Word of mouth went out. And as we'd get a little more enthusiasm, we would try to get one hour closer and then an hour closer. And by the way, Manning Park is between the, between the Fraser Valley and the next stop, which is Merritt and Princeton. There's nothing in Manning Park. It's, there's just nothing available. Although we did even look at a few acres in there in the middle of nowhere, up the side of a mountain and so forth. But we finally ended up in Princeton and we went scouting and we saw a property that we thought was okay. And it was 160 acres and it was mostly straight up the side of a mountain. But what the heck, you know, it had a house on it. And we went over and we photographed it all. We climbed up the side of this mountain and photographed it, photographed the valley and everything. We came back and we said, I think we should make an offer on this. Uh, by the way, there's all kinds of economics to this. Charitable societies are not like, say, a guy who works in a mill. A guy who works in a mill can put 5% down on, and get a mortgage. We, because we're a large group of people, have to put 40% down. <laughs> we're a dangerous crew. This, these charitable societies are a dangerous crew. I don't know what. Anyway, we found all, all this stuff out. and We really had, you know, it was quite a, quite a situation. But we thought, this is the place. And it was, I think it was about 180,000 or something like this. You know, for a house and 160 acres and, you know, and so we, and we had photographed it and photographed it. We got back and we were going to have a little meeting and show everybody the exciting news. We, we pull up all of the, the uh, pictures and they're all black. None of them came out except the shots across the valley. And there was one place that we looked at across the valley, and that's the only photo that came out. And so we said, let's phone them and make an offer on that instead. So we, we, we just made an offer on the place across the valley, which was 17 acres, but it was flat with a, some little hills behind it. And it had a house on it, and it was $168,000. So we uh, got it an ex accepted offer, and now we had to get funds for this. And this was a house. This is this is was startling uh, contrast to my years. I, I've been living in shacks and 
Thai monasteries and caves and all this kind of stuff for, for years. I mean, t- how long? 10, 12 years. And suddenly we're actually in a house that has electric lights, it has electricity, a phone, flush toilets, water, a yard. It's, it's got acreage and it's yours if you want it. And um, so it's kind of strangely hard to get my mind around the, the whole thing. We then had this problem of how do you buy this place? And how do you get a mortgage? So I, a bunch of people co-signed for the, for the down payment sort of thing. And then we had to get a bank and we, we I didn't know how to do this. So we, we had, a, there are mortgage companies and out, outside of banks, like private mortgages and everything. And just when we're coming like within a couple of days of losing the place, I happened to get a phone call from a guy we called Uncle Charlie. And he was a crane operator who had, through his Thai wife, had, he was a Canadian guy. He had met us at the Shack Monastery and he used to come up and he was a great guy, Uncle Charlie. He's a blue collar crane worker and everything, but we got to know the monks and he was, he was part of the Thai married Canadian community. And he, he was calling from the Thai temple and it was just, it was a Sunday. And he said, how you doing up there? And I, oh, it's Uncle Charlie. How are you? I said, he said, you guys got the mortgage yet? Uh, no, actually, Charlie, we don't. We don't have the mortgage. He says, well, you know, Dave's here and he's, uh, he's the um, manager at a BC a bank, you know, uh, and his wife is Thai. So I'll tell his wife that the monks need a mortgage and then he'll have to give you a mortgage. And I said, no, Charlie, Charlie, just, no, no, no. He goes over and tells his Thai wife. And then the next voice on the phone is, is Dave. Oh, hello, Ajahn. Uh, and so uh, I hear you need a mortgage. And I said, yes, Dave, we need, I'm sorry that <laughs> we didn't mean to put you on the spot or anything. How much do you need? And so forth. And well, we need $108,000. And, uh, and we got about two days. And he said, okay, uh, I'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> so we got it. Uh, we got the mortgage. And a couple of people had to, you know, so people had to cooperate. They had to sign. They had to put their names on this stuff because we, we, we don't. We can't, you know. So it was quite a cooperative effort. And we had no idea whether we could actually make mortgage payments. Anyway, we got to Princeton. And it was quite a thing. I moved into a bedroom, but I, there was a closet in the bedroom and it was one of those sort of pseudo walking closets. It was eight feet long, three feet wide. So I thought I'm moving in there. So I have my, my bedroom was the closet. I just had a little rollout that I put on the floor and I stayed in the closet. <laughs> Not that kind of closet. <laughs> and, but it was weird to do adjust to the, the new situation, you know, we had showers and so forth. So we had a place and of course I didn't really want to stay in the house and there was a tool shed beside the house. So we fixed that up. It was all soaked with oil and machine oil and everything, but we increased the floor and put some styrofoam down and put some plywood on there, cut a window into it 
and just in a primitive way. And then I ran an electric line out there. So that was the Abbot's Kuti was, was the tool shed. And this is how it actually developed. We brought our three trailers along. So we had three trailers and a, a tool shed and a house. And so we started and we started with no, you know, it's a long ways away. It's in a different direction, but we had a phone and so forth. And also Miguel Romero had decided he wanted to become a monk. And so I, I received my first novice and Ajahn Pasno came up from Abhaigiri Monastery to perform the ceremony. I, I didn't have, I didn't have the 10 reins. So to, to make a novice, you only have to have one monk but you have to have 10 reins. So I, was, I, was, I had nine reins. Ajahn Pasano came up and did the novice ordination. Later on, we would go to California for the actual higher ordination for, uh, for Miguel, who became Tita Puno. So he's my first sort of formal monastic uh, disciple and uh, excellent. And he was, he was a, he's a former... Uh, He's a PhD in, in chemistry at, at UBC and with good professorship opportunities at a, the University of Victoria, he had an opportunity to go there, which is a, a peachy kind of thing. And he, he decided to drop out and become a monk. So here we are. And we're, again, without any resources and no stewards or anything. But compared to the shack with no resources and stewards, it's, it's quite a thing. You got electric lights and it seems pretty okay. <laughs> but we had no way to guarantee food or anything like this. So my mother got a f bought a chest freezer and pre-cooked a whole bunch of, uh, filled it with food and drove it up and with my cousin, George, and dropped off the freezer and George. <laughs> and George was more than happy to become the new steward. And he, he didn't have to do much cooking. He just took out frozen food and thought it out and offered it to us. So we were in. And that's how it started. And Princeton was quite a, a trip. Again, we had, you know, expenses and mortgages and stuff. And we had no idea if we could manage to do this. But visitors came, lots of visitors, and donations came in. And we more than easily handled the mortgage. And we had a place for steward to stay and guests to stay and so forth. And we, we built, um, we took the, the woodshed. Uh, we actually turned that into a kuti for Sister Mon, <laughs> who had shown up at Princeton. Sister Mon arrived at Princeton. And so we had a little community. We had two monks and a nun and a steward. Sometimes we had two stewards and we had various guests. In the first year, I think 150 people came through to sort of all, all told 150 like visitors and so forth. And the next year, 350 came through. And the next year, 700. And then I got a phone call one day from somebody who uh, had taken, uh, been uh, practiced meditation with me. And he said, uh, how much is the mortgage on, on there? And I said, well, it's uh, $108,000. Well, 
I'll pay it off. <laughs> so I paid it off. So I, I put down the phone and I said to him, I said to everybody, oh, our mortgage is paid off now. <laughs> so it happens that way in monastic structures. So uh, we were there for three and a half years total. Remember, we were at the shack as a monastery for three and a half years. And then we we're at Princeton for three and a half years. This kind of this seven-year kind of thing is a, a feature of my life. And it was very expansive. We got in touch with a lot more people, and we put out a newsletter, which was written by hand. But, so we also didn't have the, the... I had heard about the Internet, and, but we didn't have computers, and we were, I was dead set against computers. And what we would do is we would... We would People would email somebody in Vancouver, this guy that volunteered to receive emails. I was still very, I didn't even, I didn't understand how it worked or anything. And then he would mail them to Princeton by snail mail. We would reply and mail back the email uh, to the, him. And he would write it out and send it back. So it was about a one week round trip at, at minimum, a one-week round trip for an email. So this went on agonizingly for a while. And then I say, finally, I just gave up. Well, let's get a computer in. And then so we, we could do email, and we had a phone and, and so forth. So this is the arrival of the Internet. That, that was a, another way of communicating. We still didn't have an online, like a website or anything like this. We still sent out handwritten newsletters that were, I had a brilliant idea. I would print it, which my printing is very bad, but we would shrink it down and it would look quite neat. <laughs> my brilliant idea. And I, I, I have felt that, that Canadians would appreciate the fact that as monks, we're still in a very primitive, you know, we're doing this with a pencil, not even a pen. I'm printing out the newsletter with a pencil. And somehow I thought, that conveys a sense of simplicity and so forth. Anyway, the ethnic communities didn't appreciate it whatsoever. They think, what some, you know, this is, this doesn't look very good. You know, like, can't you afford a typewriter or what's the matter? with? <laughs> okay, so disparity of sanya or perception between the ethnic communities and the Canadian communities. But so many uh, adventures there. So we, we continued, we built two kutis there from scratch. And mine was up on the top of this little hill. And in the winter time, it was steep as anything. It was like a ski hill. And mine was perched right on top. And it was treacherous to go up there and down. But I happened to have been raised at a ski resort and I made myself a little rope tow with, not with an engine on it, but a propane tank tied on one side of the tow and the uh, wheels, you know, the little turnbuckle kind of thing. And I would just strap myself in and plunge off the side of this hill straight down and the propane tank would go up the other side and I would come down. And there is some photos or even videos, perhaps, of me um, plunging off the side of the cliff down. 
because I was raised on snowy slopes. As, as I, as I said, my parents owned a ski resort when I was a kid. I was a trophy-winning skier and everything. So, anyway, it was all right. Both of those kutis actually, we actually brought them along to this new monastery, and it was a, it was a doozy to try to get them down off those hills. We had to get a backhoe to skid them off those hills. <laughs> but we didn't want to throw our resources away when we actually finally sold the other monastery. The monastery and the events of the monastery were that we were just continuously building up. It was, as I say, 150 guests, 350, 700, spreading out. I was traveling a lot. I would accept any invitation to teach anywhere in Canada or the US. And I would fly back and forth and so forth and just this is the way it's done. I was raised that way in the monastic life. Bhante Gunaratana at West Virginia was one of the most traveled monks, maybe the most traveled monk in the world. He would accept any invitation. And I'm talking about Singapore, Australia, Russia, Scandinavia, back to Germany, down to Sri Lanka, over to India, up to, over to Malaysia, back to all over the States. He was just flying around. And he just walk out of the monastery and leave us to run the place. So that's what I did as well, is I would try to accept any invitation. And in order to spread the, the sense of the Sangha and awareness, because again, we, we don't have a website. That wasn't even considered or thought of. It was basically just one-on-one, -on -one, you know, you, you had to make a real appearance. And so that's how I did it. And I would, we would drive to Vancouver and we would drive to any city. We would, so George was driving me down to Vancouver in the middle of the night and then back and I had to give a talk and I, here and there. So all over the place by vehicle and then by plane. That's how it kind of evolved. And we were building, we were also modifying the place. And it was a, it was a conventional house. And we, first thing we did was we took the kitchen out of the, the main, the main floor and put it down in the basement and it opened the main floor for, for meditation. And so we, we turned the whole place upside down and this and that. So it wasn't the best thing for resale value. <laughs> we lost some money on that house <laughs> because we had turned it into our, our place. But I, I'd been sitting on my hands for so many years in that shack where we couldn't touch it that I didn't care and I fully anticipated that we would make this place unconventional and we would just have to deal with it later on. I had learned a lot of carpentry in West Virginia and I really had never touched a hammer before that. I was a classical musician and I disdained the very notion of being practical enough to tie my own shoelaces. But I had a, a, an epiphany in the robes about making yourself useful. <laughs> And so it turned out that I had some talent with this stuff. So I I sort of picked it up quite well. Anyway, so we modified the house. And of course, we never consulted anybody. We ripped walls out and so forth and just took chances on structural stuff and, and just did what we had to with our own resources because we had slender resources. We couldn't bring in, you know, carpenters and stuff to, to do this stuff for us. But we, we built our own uh, kutis and... We turned tool sheds into kutis and we turned 
woodsheds into cooties. And oh, we finally got it mostly done. And uh, then another offer came for more money. And Ajahn Pasno had come and visited that monastery. And we asked him, what do you think? And he said, it's a good intermediate monastery. This is not your final monastery. And so I always had that in my mind. And then I got another phone call with an offer of $300,000. And I say, okay, it's time. Now we go searching for the final monastery. And that triggered the next expedition, which took us all over the Okanagan. We, again, we had learned a lot about real estate and we had learned a lot about where we could position ourselves. We were very interested in the Merritt area and the highway between Princeton and Merritt, some beautiful land in there. And we, we went in there and we were very eager, but the prices were uh, out of our comfort range and so forth. And so the, the search went on for quite some time. And we had actually made some offers on other land closer to Kamloops but with a, just a conventional house on it. It was 160 acres. But it wasn't, you know, we were thinking, well, we'll try to build something on it, but there's, there's zoning bylaws and all this kind of stuff. So, And just at the last moment, we'd already put, we made one offer and a second offer, and a realtor in Merritt said, there's this place in the forest, a huge building, that is up for sale. It's not, it's only half finished, but you might be interested. So we, we were already kind of invested in this other place, but we said, well, we'll drop in on the way back. So we, we came in to, to try to find the place that we're in. We couldn't find it. It was not apparent where it was. It, we, we looked and, and couldn't find it. So we went down to Merritt and said, we couldn't find it. He gave us better instructions. Say, well, okay, we'll next time. So we draw up a week later and look, couldn't find it again. Now we were really interested. <laughs> if we can't find it, it's perfect. Because we had made a list of 17 things that we were looking for. If this is going to be the final monastery, we want it very carefully selected. It's not just an expedient anymore. And the first one was out of sight of people. And then the second one is out of sound of people. And so, we, you know, driving up that logging road, you, you're way in there. You're off grid and so forth. So we, we, the realtor actually brought us up and took us in and we've, wow, look at the size of this. What the? And the basement floor was not poured yet. It was mud and so forth. And it was a giant building. And we didn't know why it was, what, but it was, we had not, we weren't looking for a building. We were looking for a forest. And by the way, it was just before the pine beetle infestation broke out. So we're looking for a pristine pine forest. And we were going to build our own custom type of uh, building. But then we came to this. This was a clear cut with a giant building on it that we had no, we never imagined building something this size. And so we, 
we changed our mind reluctantly because one of the things was the forest. We, that was one of our list, you know, the forest, a beautiful forest. We wanted water. Well, we have a we have the marsh here, and but we the forest was out there, but not here. It was a scrubby, clear sort of stumpy clear cut. Anyway, we did, of course, buy this place with the, the giant building and it. And not a few years after that, the pine beetle infestation took place. And if this had been a full mature pine forest, we would have lost the whole thing. It would have just been a stumpy clear cut <laughs> that we had paid for. So we actually lucked out brilliantly on that. And now, 20 years later, it's grown up and to be a beautiful little forest. And uh, we managed to skip the pine beetle infestation because it was all logged off. But I will leave the arrival at Birkin 3 for another time because I have now covered seven years of the Shack and Princeton combined, and we have 20 years left of this story. And I'm mad, I must say I've skated over a lot of the activity at Princeton. There is just so many stories that it's impossible to do anything but sketch it out. And many of them are stories about humans who came and visited. And some of them I know to this day. Of course, some of them from the shack that I know to this day who are still persisting. Some of the stewards are... are still practicing and visit us regularly. Some people have gone on to be even to the monastic life as well, including uh, Ajahn Pavaro, who is now 15 years as a monk. He showed up at the Princeton. And so we have many biographies in this, including some not so good, some Occasionally, somebody would go mad. <laughs> I, the first winter we were there, we had, George had fulfilled his mission, and we had two stewards to take us through a winter. And one of them, the young fellow came to me and said one morning that the other fellow had been cutting the same carrot for an hour. And I went and talked to him, and he had gone off the deep end. So we tried to manage him a little bit. The other younger fellow was quite nervous about this and ran away. <laughs> so we were left with one crazy steward. <laughs> the other one, terrified, had run away. And we had to send this one to the psychiatric unit, which happened to be George's job to take him to the psychiatric unit which George did. And then George was back. <laughs> I said, George, <laughs> we need you again. <laughs> so George is the hero of the story. Often we, he comes when everything else falls apart. George is there. <laughs> so I will leave these biographical details for now because we still have 20 years ahead of us. And uh, it may take another episode or two of uh, YouTube videos to cover it.